Welcome to Beautiful Humans, the social change cast, where behavior analysis and social justice collide. Join us as we aim to move the needle on personal and social change by tapping into the beautiful humans inside of all of us. Follow us on Spotify, Apple, or whatever medium you prefer to make sure you never miss an episode. You can find us on Instagram at Beautiful Humans Change and on Facebook at Beautiful Humans, the social change cast. If you're interested in supporting this podcast, go to www.patreon.com slash beautifulhumans to become a Patreon. Welcome back, beautiful humans. It's Denisha. Oh, this sounds so odd. So (laughs) we have no errand today. If you can't tell already, it's a first. Um, that I'm doing my show or our show without them. See, that that doesn't even sound right. Um, But Aaron wants to let you all know that they love and miss you all. But life is life and right now. So go ahead and send them some love and some hugs and just look forward to the return on our next epi. And um, yeah, I guess right now, Aaron and I would be catching up and wrapping up our conversation from today's host. But I'll do the check in by myself. And so how am I doing? I'm doing fine. Um, I will say that we're still in a pandemic, both systemic and pathogenic. Protests are still erupting all over this country. And though media might have stopped heavily reporting it, it's still going on. And so I think when we look back at this moment in time, we're going to need to consider where we are. Have we been as active as we wish? Have we been as vocal as we hope? And if we have not, how can we change that today? So today is officially July 14th. Um, Until Freedom, if you have been paying attention to the social justice movement, Until Freedom has been vocal. They are part of my extended justice family. Um, But today they're in Kentucky fighting for Breonna Taylor. She was 27 Uh, when she was gunned down while sleeping in her home. And um, in the moments leading up to her death or her murder, um, a raid and use of uh, military and war grade equipment was used. And um, we found out yesterday that the investigator decided that that was a passive act, that her murder, the moments leading up to her murder act. So, If you haven't figured this out just yet, the movement is far from over. And if you feel like it is settling, it's likely because you have settled and you've possibly satiated. Um, If you were contacting reinforcement prior um, or you've likely habituated to the current environment, but it's not time. It's not time to settle. We've not made the changes that we need yet. Um, So with that being said, I am going to get to tonight's guest who will talk to us about culture and cultural competency within the behavior science field. And um, tonight's going to focus on behavior analysis, but if you are outside of the field, there will definitely be information for you to apply wherever setting or whatever setting you're a part of. So without further ado, I want to welcome Sean Capel. Hi, Sean. (laughs) How are you? I'm good. How are you? I'm getting through. I'm that getting part. through. That part. Yeah. So, Sean, you've been on our show before, but for our new listeners, why don't you go ahead and tell us about yourself? 
the question nobody likes. Um, my name is Sean Thomas Capel. I have been built since 2010. Um, I currently am the executive director of Covenant 1516. We are a very small ABA-based organization based out of Houston, Texas, as of a couple of weeks ago. Um, right now, we're focusing on supervision, but in a couple of weeks, God willing, um, we'll be branching into other avenues of ABA service delivery. Um, one of my goals and my objectives as a clinician has been to address the issue of multicultural and diversity issues within the field. Um, I'd love to see more people that look like me um, in our field. So that's kind of what has been my focus over the last few years. Yeah. I remember when I met you and you were breaking down, <laughs> you were breaking down, you know, the hierarchy in our field. And I was just like, yes, you know, when you meet people, you know, there's just like this connection, obviously at ABAI, there's, there's not that many of us anyway. So, but we were having this candid conversation about like, you know, what this hierarchy looks like. And even when you do go to places or you work for places where you do see more uh, black folks, they're at the bottom. They're the RBTs, they're the line therapist. Um, and so um, I know that this has been a part of your passion for a while. So I'm excited to see, you know, your company branch into that area and, and actually, you know, continue to make changes because you've already made changes within the field. So dope. I'm start. I'm starting to realize that it still hasn't sunk in, but like, honestly, even when I met you, you were the first African-American BCBA I had ever met. So like, if I was looking at you kind of crazy it was because, Oh, there's another unicorn. Okay, cool. <laughs> this is great. <laughs> Yeah. Well, I was like that for so many years. I think, I don't know if I told the story on this show, but before I moved to Maryland, I always thought it was always going to be just myself or maybe one other person because that's what all of my um, work environments look like. And then I came back to Maryland. Now, mind you, I had lived in Maryland before. So this was my experience like in two... 2010 leading up to 2013 my experience was still one or two but then when I came back here in 2018 I was like wait where does black people come from and I'm meeting black BCBAs oh okay so we're on an up and up but while we're on this up and up you know our field is gonna have to take notes um you know Tonight, we're talking about cultural incompetency, and you said for tonight's show, it's more than just a what? Check mark. More than just a check mark. So good to see diversity. What are we going to do when we get a man? So awesome. So Shine, you wrote a book. That part, that happens. <laughs> Tell us about your book. So the name, hold on, let me make sure I get the name right, because I have been messing it up all day. Um, <laughs> the name of the book is Multiculturalism and Diversity in Applied Behavior Analysis, Bridging the Gap from Theory to Application. So it's a book that I, that both myself, as well as my colleague, Brian Connors, we both co-edited. Um, it is full of a wide range of topics and it's definitely, I'll just have to put this disclaimer out there. It's not a one size fits all model, but it definitely is an amazing starting point for you to start 
figuring out what the issues are within our field and how we can actually address them moving forward. I think for so long, we just didn't have a starting point. Like we just didn't have it (laughs) these past two years. I will say, um, I think it's been, yeah, two, two or three, these past few years have been nerve wracking because there has not really been a model for it. And so think about when you're trying to start from scratch, like how stressful that is. And so y'all had to obviously start from scratch. And so, and I think one of the most odd parts about this is how our field is to the culture that is embedded in our field. So, you you know, what starting from scratch and just having a starting point could possibly look like or feel like to other people who expect you to have a perfect product when you put it out. But um, and I haven't read your book yet, so I, I'm going to assume that it's a perfect product. Um, but no, I just... <laughs> In theory, yes. In in my head, after all the hours of looking at pages and rereading stuff, it's a perfect product to me. But this is far from a perfect product, just because, just given the nature of culture and uh-huh. and who we are as as human beings, we couldn't add everything into two hundred and eighty some odd pages. That's true. That's definitely true. Like, regardless if that book was two hundred and eighty pages or two thousand eighty pages, we'll still not. We're never, you know, going to really get it. Yeah. Um, Okay. So tell our listeners where they can get your book from. So right now they can get it. They can go on Amazon. um, They can type in the title of the book and it'll pop right up. Um, I know that they are shipping the paperback copies. If you're requesting a hard, like a hardcover book, there has been some delay in getting those out, which is the reason why I haven't even got the book myself. Um, my own personal copy, but they can get it from Amazon at this point. Okay. Awesome. Um, and so I don't know, like if you've been keeping your ear to the social media or like, how has the response been so far? Well, first and foremost, when the book came out, I had no idea that the book had gotten released. Um, I was in the process of relocating. So I looked at my phone and there were like 90 some odd different um, notifications. And I was like, oh my God, what happened? Somebody died. Then of course I look at the first notification and it was a picture of the book. Like, look what I'm today. And it took like three minutes for me to realize, wait a minute, that's, that's the book. Wait, when did the book come out? (laughs) Um, The response has been absolutely overwhelming. I have, Maybe I'm not looking for it, but I have not had any negative feedback from um, the book. I've had a couple of people said they've read the entire book cover to cover already, um, and they absolutely love it. So hopefully, hopefully it's a good sign. Yeah. Awesome. You know what? So before we sat down today, I was thinking about that, right? I was thinking about what I know from the field or what I what I think I know, right? Our field is small. There's plenty of works that have been done, just like in general, but we're still a very small field and you don't know everything that's out there. But I was like, I'm pretty sure this is the first textbook. I know I didn't use a textbook like this. I wasn't trained in culture, diversity and my behavior analysis uh, program. Uh, So to me, I was like, wow, like. Wow. So it it got me to thinking, like, Sean, like, how do you feel as a black man writing the first textbook for our field that 
will be distributed among training programs that I am sure want to do what's necessary for their clients. Like I'm so sure that this is going to be embedded in programs all across the world. That is a really difficult question to answer only because I'll give you the political, politically correct. It sounds great. It's wonderful. Um, It has not hit home yet. I, the more I look at this book every single day, I sit at this desk and do my work and it still has not hit that this is a book that I helped edit and my name is on it. And this book will be read for generations to come. I do, I haven't wrapped my head around it yet. I mean, I'm thoroughly, honestly, I'm blessed. I'm honored to even, um, to Dr. Connors for even considering like, hey, Sean, let's write a book. Because honestly, when he presented the idea to me, I thought he was joking and I kind of just brushed it off to be completely honest with you. but to see how this book could potentially change the field and to know that I had a hand in it, I, I still, I don't, I don't, I don't have a point of reference for that. Yeah. I guess I'll figure it out in like 30 years once I retire. <laughs> all right. All right. I feel that. Um, so tonight's episode for our listeners, it is a CE eligible event. That means if you are a behavior analyst and you need to collect CEs, um, you may continue to tune in and um, get a CE from it if you are a Patreon. And so if you are not a Patreon, a patron, and you want to sign up for uh, CEs, we offer at least 12 CEs per year. So you can go sign up on our Patreon uh, so www.patreon.com slash beautiful humans. All right. So getting into it tonight, we are talking about culture, competence and applied behavior analysis. And like we alluded to earlier, it's more than a check mark. So Shine, I'll let you take it away. Where do you want to start us off at? So I this is something that happened to me this weekend. And I think it kind of illustrates this point very quick, very, very well. Um, I like to bake. Baking is my, my, my joy in life. Lord only knows. And one of the things I like to do is I like to make red velvet cakes. These, this is my grandmother's recipe. So I feel like I'm pretty competent. So I want you to think, I want your, uh, your listeners to think about, okay, just say one morning you wake up and you want to make a red velvet cake. That's what's on your mind. That's on your taste buds. So you don't really have any experience making red velvet cake. You've never done this before. Um, but you want to make it for your significant other because it's their birthday. And since we're stuck in the house with COVID, not much is unfortunately open. Um, so you go on, just like everybody else does, you go on YouTube, find a recipe and you figure out how to make it done, how to get it done. Um, you make the first attempt and you destroy it. Burns Mm -hmm. up. You almost burn down the house. Cause you know, if you've not had any baking experience, that's very likely to happen. Um, the second attempt comes out better. It's not the best thing in the world, but it's edible. So you keep it going. The question I would ask your learners is, does that make you competent in making red velvet cake? Because you've done it one time. The chances are going to be no. What, doing something one time does not make you competent. It makes you maybe effective. Absolutely. Because you, you, you've created a cake. It's there. Um, but I think that you then have to look at that, take that example and apply it to ABA and what we do. Um, 
you're working just because you've worked with one particular family or with one particular cultural group that does not make you culturally competent in that particular cultural group because there are different there are a lot of different variables that go into that individual's culture and if you're not taking those things into consideration you could be not only providing a lesser service but you could be negatively impacting that particular client and the family and that community at large Mm. I like that. And then I guess too, with that red velvet cake slash cultural cake, like you don't know the ingredients. Like what happens when you don't know the ingredients that go inside, right? Because <laughs> so. if I know I'm from the South, so I've made a lot of red velvet cakes in my day. And I know there's a billion different ways of making this one particular cake. And I'm not talking about from the Betty Crocker box, because mm-hmm. that is a way of doing it, Lord knows. But doing it from scratch, there's a lot of different ways. So you can't always approach every situation with the same cookie cutter model. And I think that unfortunately in our field, do that a lot. We do it a lot more than we should. And I think that even as we, like we've discussed the book, I think that's one of my biggest fears with the book is people will read it, read one chapter and says, yes, I know how to work with African-Americans and go. That's why I say that cultural competency is so much more than just a check mark, only because what worked for one person will not work for the same person that that house. It's not, you've got to be able to individualize the treatments that you're providing. Yes. And so, I mean, if you would think that that sounds like obvious as behavior analysts, right? Because we individualize our treatments. Um, but it's not as obvious, especially when we already didn't have the foundation. But when we look at other fields, say, for example, you know, I'm from the mental health field. We were given stereotypes like the counseling field, the mental health field is light years above, um, you know, applied behavior analysis. But I listen back or I read back some of the materials that I learned and I'm like, you know, literally it's like, okay, so when you work with an African-American client, they may prefer solution-focused therapy. They might want you to um, reveal more about yourself than you would in the past. And don't get me wrong, like some of these cultural um, things, obviously we know that we can take data on these things. But as behavior analysts, we know the importance of individualizing. Um, and so, yes, we can use the data and and still understand that context is necessary, right? Um, so that that's definitely a good point you made. Um, does, in your textbook, do you talk about, like, how do we see the larger issue and, like, the macro and the micro together? Like, how do we utilize both things at once? Yes, in the, in the book, we have, We did a couple of different things. We not only dedicated specific chapters to specific cultural groups, we then went, took it a little farther back and said, okay, as a field of ABA, how does cultural competency affect ethics? How does it affect service delivery and all these different things? Because I think that as being a behavior analyst, as being within this field, we are very linear in our thinking. We want solutions. We want outcomes. We want data-driven decisions. Unfortunately, there's no data to back up the decisions that we're making in respect to cultural competency. So since there's no data, there a lot of the times 
individuals will say, oh, I attended a CEU event, so I'm competent. Check that off the list. It is so much more than just attending a class. And mm-hmm. it, 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 it's frustrating because although we understand we are very good when it comes to ethics, we're very good when it comes to service delivery and figuring these things out, we forget that culture impacts every single aspect of our lives from the way we interact with each other to the way the foods we eat to the clothes we drink, the way we dress. But why is that not considered and factored into the services that we provide? Right, exactly. And and one of the most interesting parts about that too is we as behavior analysts won't accept that there actually is data that exists outside of our field. And I mean that from like a larger component like us as a field. Um, That data exists, but then it's like, oh, but we have to, we have to um, measure it our way or we have to like define it our way before like we will actually say that it's okay, it's legit, or it's legitimate. Um, and I do understand, obviously, we all understand that definitions are important. So with that being said, though, um, I'm going to ask you, because we're talking about cultural competence, can you define what that is for our listeners? Okay, so I'm going to use a the definition that I think is the most comprehensive one that I have been able to come up with, and it actually comes from the book. Um, it, we define cultural competence as the capability to develop an awareness of one's cultural beliefs, values, as well as biases, while acquiring knowledge of the norms and behaviors of other cultures and displaying professional skills that combine awareness and knowledge at the same time. So it's not just, it starts with you figuring out kind of where you sit on this cultural this cultural time frame and this cultural awareness situation, but also identifying where does someone else sit on this same exact um, in this same. I'm you. I'm forgetting the word timeline. Timeline. We'll, we'll go with timeline because that works. And then being able to bridge the gap to where I might not. I might not have the same beliefs and values as you, but when it comes to programming, my values and beliefs don't really play the largest role in this, it has to be something that works for you. Mm. If that makes sense. Yeah. So I, I I like the, um, the information or the literature too, on like cultural humility. And one thing about cultural competence, humility, awareness, um, all of those different ways that we can use to describe it. I think obviously language is important. And so, Cultural competence has, uh, don't quote me, but I feel like it has the longest standing framework, right, (laughs) for her. I mean, I definitely know cultural humility is kind of new in comparison, but that part that you just said in the last part of it was like, okay, and how do you, one, I didn't hear an an absolution or an abortion. and absolving of your own culture, right? I still heard that as part of that, but it shouldn't be the main component, right? And like, how do you um, humble yourselves? <laughs> and absolutely, take, mm-hmm, and that, uh, take that into consideration. It's that you've got to check your attitude at the door, like, or check your biases, check your own your own situation at the door, because if 
I could understand if you were the one receiving services, we'll put you in the front seat. But right now, you're not you're not the driver. You're the passenger. So get in the passenger seat. And when we don't do that and when we don't look at it from that way, how are we then impacting our clients? And and definitely not a good way. Um, I know I can speak from personal experience. Given the nature of everything that's going on in the world with social justice, not taking, I'll be completely transparent here. Um, There was a post that was put on social media regarding that race is, that color is not something that we would factor into our service delivery. Um, Well, unfortunately, that's a, that's a statement that is made out of privilege, partly because when skin color is skin color might not be important to you, but it is important to the individuals that you're working with. So when, if you're a clinician working with an individual and you don't see skin color, how can you teach that individual to effectively contact reinforcement in their community? So then that begs to differ. If you're not providing adequate services for the individual, are you actually being ethical in your service delivery? Yeah. And that gets to the point too, is then, and how are you selecting targets if you're not taking into consideration um, all of their components, which incorporates skin color, which, which that also, um, also plays a part into their, their learning histories and their experiences. And so if you're not targeting the things that are most important to them, because you are literally um, deciding that you will negate one part of them. Uh, Oh, you know what, as I'm saying that I'm being reminded, like um, Dr. Fong, Elizabeth Hughes Fong made this point to say, like when you decide that you're not going to, oh, I'm going to misquote the mess out of her. But basically she's saying when you decide not to, um, when you decide that you're not going to take something into consideration, you're, you're telling the client that there's something about you that's more important than the other. So I just butchered that. And I wish I could find it. I wish I could remember it. But essentially, yes, like I felt like when I heard her say that the first time, it's like, yeah, you're putting what's important to you on a hierarchy and you're saying, okay, cool, we'll we'll go down this, this and that into that individual, especially as a black individual. There are things that are more important to an individual based on their history. And you're saying, ah, that's not important right now. Let's go ahead and and do something else that I feel more comfortable with targeting. So um, you're definitely missing so many parts of just one individual by one colorblind. I mean, we don't live in a post-racial society. Colorblindness. I thought this conversation went away years ago. I've been saying this lately because I've been in the social justice movement for, I mean, I'm still young, but I've been here for a long time and I feel like we just have the same conversations over and over again. And so like, it's just really crazy that even in 2020, we're still saying, Hey, we're not in a post-racial society. Hey, it's not okay to say that you're colorblind, you know? So, And I, I think that as behavior analysts, when we talk about race and we bring in these more abstract concepts, we as behavior analysts do kind of just check off, you know, like we just kind of zoom that out, very similar to what they did on Charlie Brown. But to those individuals, I would say, take race out of it and say, 
and put in an individual who writes with their left hand. Now, mm-hmm. you write, I am right hand dominant. I've always been right hand dominant. The individual is, if I'm providing services to an individual, I'm not going to force them to write with their right hand if that's not their dominant hand. That If we see something so wrong with that, why would we not see something wrong with everything else that's going on? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, that also, yeah. I just had a thought about... Um, which is off topic, but on topic still about, you know, how we choose our targets and and what we determine as important. And if we're not being socially valid, uh, if we're not able to get the buy-in from uh, the individuals that we serve, like that's showing us. And I know like um, for a long time in my work, I have listened to colleagues. I have been the colleague that's like, what's going on? Like this parent isn't part of the program. And if we're not taking an analysis of why this parent is not part of this program, what are we missing here? There's something that's not registering for this individual um, or there's other components that are hindering the individual from being part of this process um, that we don't really take into consideration. Socioeconomic, a lot of people have to work more than one jobs. We make them be present and part of the treatment program. They have to be home. They have to do parent training. You're asking people who, you know, already have a lot um, on their plate to do this other thing. And if you really want it, then you'll do it, right? Like, and that's Absolutely. the thing. Um, and how is that cultural incompetence, right? And I know your chapter talks a little bit about that too. Um, so like how, when we don't consider socio variables, socio identity, how is that also playing in, uh, a part in our cultural incompetence? We know that ABA is a very young field, although we feel like we've been around forever um, in comparison to our our other social sciences, we are very new. Um, And unfortunately, we do not have the best reputation. In some circles, we are considered to be very regimented, very strict, very, I always go back to the M&M analogy to where we're getting kids to do what we want them to do by giving them M&Ms. So although in some areas of the country and in some communities and some cultures, ABA is very well received, unfortunately in others, it's not. And I think that that's where it's the biggest area of opportunity as well as our biggest asset as a field. Um, You're not only, when you go into a pro, when you go into a home or when you're interacting with an individual and you're not providing culturally competent services, you're not just impacting that particular individual, but their immediate family, their extended family, their entire community, as well as the entire field of day. Um, Give you an example. If the, so I'll go back to that wonderful post on Facebook. If you're telling me that race is not something that you see or color is not something that you see, you're working with an African-American family, the family comes to you and says, hey, we want to work on social interactions with a police officer. You choose, no, we're not going to do that. I don't see race. It's not a big deal. The family is going to automatic, well, is going to then assume that ABA is not individualized. They are not going to become advocates. They're not going to buy into the services. So then that community can very well become averse to ABA because if another child has autism, and they say, hey, what worked for you? A- don't go to ABA because they don't listen. They just use M&Ms. 
then eventually the community at large that continues to grow and then nobody wants to do ABA and we're all out of jobs. So I think that we need to view it as more of just a one-on-one -on -one interaction, but you're literally changing not only the trajectory of one individual's life, but you're changing the trajectory of the entire community. Yeah. So, and then also that goes back to then how you target, because imagine going to that same family and you're like, oh, okay, yeah, sure. We'll talk about, we'll work with your kid on how to interact with the police. And your method is, hey, yeah, I know how to solve it. I'm just going to take your kid up to the police station, introduce them and everything. It's going to be fine. Um, and we're just going to pair with them. Um, what happens when you have not done a good literature search? Number one, you have not individualized to even ask the questions. How does this family feel about police officers? Really? What are they actually asking you? Are they asking you really? How can my child get along with the police? Or they're asking, how can my child be safe in the community with the police? And like, that's gonna, that's gonna determine how you set your targets. So if you can't, one, take a step back and actually listen to the individual who is telling you or giving you information into what is important to them, you're gonna likely set up a program that is not even relevant to them and that doesn't even embody what the key issue is for that individual. So doing a fair, a, a, a very good assessment, doing a literature search, seeing what's out there. I think that as behavior analysts, we see so many of us, I mean, for years, I remember I have, uh, obviously I do criminal justice work in terms of uh, criminal justice activism. So like, I remember being interested in saying like, oh, what are the ABA folks doing with criminal justice? And key focus is, is on offender behavior or like key focus is training cops. And it's like, are you not listening? Okay, like if that's the only thing that we can offer as a field is how to help how to help, you know, the system that disproportionately impacts Black folks, uh, we're doing something wrong. And so, yeah, we, we have way more work to do. And when it comes to actually engaging in listener behavior, listener Absolutely. behavior. And I think that it's, I, my, I hear my grandmother screaming in my ear. It's talking out of both sides of your mouth at once. On one hand, we say ABA is a science that can affect the world. We can change the world with our science. But on the other hand, we're saying we can change the world, but we're not going to touch this, 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 and this. Well, how how are we changing the world if we're not impacting the world? Mm -hmm. And then even um, you brought up a point of that parent buy-in. If I'm a parent, I know I've worked with several parents that have been considered very difficult and or challenging. And it's not that they're challenging. It's they don't feel the buy-in. They don't feel like, okay, yeah, AA works from a kid. They can count to 10 now. Great, fabulous. But the at least for me in my practice, when I've seen that real parent buy-in where the parents are on it, they want to learn, it's when they start to see changes that are socially significant to them, not just to the therapist. Because for some parents, it's great my child can count to 10. Wonderful. But my child was able to walk down the street and have an interaction with somebody and they came home from that interaction. Yes, this works. I'm good. I'm all in. Mm -hmm. So it's I think as clinicians, 
being able to understand that even as a culture of being BCBAs, we do have a bias. We have a bias because we think that our field is the end all be all. Nobody else can touch us. We are it. And being able to understand that sometimes it's better for us to take a back seat and just listen, but honestly listen, not just, oh, we heard you. We're going to write it down and never touch this stuff again. Yes. Yes. I feel like recently, um, because we are right now within a, a major social justice movement and a shift, um, we're starting to identify more people in our field that are like waking up to the fact that we don't have all our stuff together. Um, and, you know, I hope that when people hear, one part of it is like, okay, so people probably hear it and like, dang, if the ABAers, you know, crap on their own field, then what does that mean? All the fields crap on their own field. Let me just say that. Absolutely. I'm part of the, I'm part of mental health field. I tell you, we'd be all up in our, uh, <laughs> in our um, Facebook groups talking about the field as well. And so it's nothing new. This is a world problem. Um, and so just going back to what you were saying, Sean, if we want to help, if we want to, to actually take on world problems, we have to be able to look at ourselves, look at this field and say, what's going on. And also know that that is one of the things too, when I was like going through my uh, master's program is like, if I sit down with a client, something that's, that we are able to use is the information that our client is giving us. And that information they're giving us also is likely telling us how they interact with others. So what that means for me in this field is the information that we're getting from our field, from individuals in our field is likely telling us how they interact with others in the world, in the larger community. And so this information is important for us to actually sit down, take a critical lens. At every point, we should always be analyzing Philosophical doubt should be utilized, especially in the case of we have a lot of stuff wrong. <laughs> like, like, let's go ahead and look at that and say, what's going on? There's a reason why there is not um, as many racial minorities in our field. There's a reason why there's not as many racial minorities in leadership positions. There's a reason why you keep having folks that do not look like you, speak like you, come from the same background as you, leaving your agency. Like there are reasons behind this. What are those reasons? You have to take a critical lens, do an assessment of that and shift some behavior at some point. So behavior analysts who've been talking up and speaking out against the the field, keep speaking because y'all are the ones that are actually going to change this. And I think that over the past few weeks, with just everything with the social justice movement that's been going on, I I think there's a difference between being competent and being placated. Mm-hmm. And I think that's where I was having a conversation with a colleague yesterday, well, a couple of days ago, and she was very, very upset because her company had put out this wonderful statement and things were going great and they promised all these things. And to date, nothing has changed. And the conversation that I had with her was, yes, people are having these conversations and yes, what do we need to do and what do we need to change and all this other fun stuff. But the problem is it's not authentic. It's 
we just want you we just want to say we did it yay and let's go about back to business as usual so in that understanding and gaining of cultural competency understanding that it's not just a one and done we attended a meeting we're going to formulate this group and yay we're done it's a continual process because there're going to be something I'll use as an example I use a lot of assessments I never thought that a lot of the assessments that I was utilizing with my clients were culturally biased mm-hmm. because think about it if you have a family that they have something as simple as a communication device an iPad is not a cheap device to buy so in order for a family who might not have the ends meet to pay the rent bills and everything else to then go in and ask them hey we need you to buy a 500 plus dollar iPad with not just the iPad but the the case for the device and all these other things that can affect the the outcome of that assessment so being able to see culture in more than just one area and understanding that yes people are going to say yeah 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 they're going to yes you to death but mm-hmm. continue to go cuz that's the only way anything changes Yes. Um one of my biggest pet peeves for any movement, I think. And it's so it's so interesting cuz like one is like you want it's like yes, this is what I want to see. And uh no, it's not what I want to see. I don't want to see one-off actions. I don't want to see people who are like you said trying to placate. It feels good for a moment, it's temporary. And it and it and it goes and we're still back in the same cycle. And so it's not good enough. And then um for me in this moment with the field of behavior analysis holding that feeling at the same time of trying to hold on to hope for better because part of me is like uh-uh where y'all been at <laughs> like um you know we had Elizabeth Hughes Fong talking uh Fong talking about adapting cultural standards almost a decade ago yeah. Where was y'all at? Like you have people in high places that were part, that you know shape behavior analysis programs that were not listening. Where y'all been at? But all y'all got Facebook statuses now. All y'all got, you know, events happening where you want to sit down with people who look like us to hold space and say, "Oh, look, I'm an ally." And that's not okay. My thing that I'm holding on to is what happens those people will shift away and go back to their corners and will be and and the ones who are actually radically changed and transformed through this moment will continue to push us forward you know that one ripple in the ocean will get will make more ripples Absolutely. and we'll see larger strides as we continue forth but yeah we've we've been seeing some actors in our field um over the past few weeks and just call it for what it is um and I'm always excited to see what what transforms out of movements because people do get radicalized radicalized through each movement and i think right now what has happened more of us have found each other that we didn't part. know we didn't know each other existed before this time <laughs> because I, I'm, i'm sorry like and i know for me i have never had this many african american or minority BCBAs in my cell phone and their contacts to where I was literally thinking about it today like wait a minute I I was it was just me at one point now I got this person this person this person okay th- I don't feel by myself now all right cool but I, 
like you were talking about Elizabeth Fong and how and how things have changed and how like the movement the movement has progressed, God willing, and will continue. Um, she had a quote in one of her papers in 2017, which honestly is has been my mood since day one. It literally states that cultural competency is no longer an option but a necessity for servicing increasing multicultural backgrounds and consumers like the united states of america our world is not the same it covid alone has demonstrated that we as a world think in the blink of an eye something can change so we cannot continue to function as business as usual this the cat is out of the bag there is no you can't get them back in let's let's get her done Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And just from a function-based perspective, ABA doesn't stand to survive if they do not, right? Like, Thank you. In the great words of our sis, um, and I can't remember her name right now, ABA field, if you don't get it right, you will about to lose your job, okay? Like, it's not... <laughs> ah, best, best video on Instagram ever. I'm sorry. Just... <laughs> Yes. So, all right. We've talked a lot about the issues and I feel like we've talked a lot about how not taking a cultural uh, lens can impact and and affect our individuals and our families and the larger community. But I want to make sure, Sean, did you have anything else you wanted to add? Um, The first... The first thing I can say is, you know, thank you to all your listeners, period, because they've already taken that first step. They've identified that they don't know everything and they've actually tuned in and are continuing to tune in um, because we know some folks, as soon as they hear a topic, they're like, and next. Um, But being able to seek out not just this podcast, and it is absolutely wonderful. And y'all know I love y'all to the moon and back. But not just this podcast, but seeking out other podcasts, seeking out other books, seeking out articles and being just caution, avoiding this little term we call tokenism, because Mm -hmm. a lot of the times they some people in our field will talk to one one member of a group and say, oh, well, I'm great. I'm good. I've talked to the one African-American that I know, and this is how we're going to go for all of them. Well, unfortunately, I don't know, Denisha, I don't know about you, but I have not been given my African-American spokesperson badge. Um, (laughs) And honestly, I don't want it at this point, but you've got to keep going. It's not just a one and done thing. You have to continue to do that in-depth self-assessment. And it's not like there are not a million and one tools that you can utilize. Um, One of the things I love is just sitting down, having conversations, not, and even not even with just my parents or with my colleagues, but just friends like, Hey, I don't, I'll prime example. I, I never grew up around Muslim Americans. I am very, very ignorant when it comes to the religion, but I have a client who is Muslim who identifies as I have gone to my friends and has said, look, talk to me like I'm three, break this whole thing down from top to bottom I still don't know everything, but at least I can go in and start to have those conversations with parents. And they've seemed very, very open compared to walking and saying, no, you need to do X, Y, and Z. Eh, it's not going to work like that. 
Can I just say, like, there is a starting point. Like, if you are working with a client who is from a background that you have no clue about, there is a starting point. You are supposed to go do some research, read about it. There's no way that I will walk into a person's home. If I get a, a call and I hear you know, that we don't speak the same language. I'm asking questions, you know, obviously it's part of intake anyway. I'm asking questions and then I am going to research customs. Now I could get to your home and you don't abide by these customs. I just need to know a starting point, right? And so, and of course, then when I have this starting point, I am going to go ahead and and ask you how, what applies to you, right? And so it helps formulate something. So if, if I've, if you are, you know, Muslim, but you don't practice, okay. And then what still comes up, what's still important to that individual? It's just good to have like a background, a, a background knowledge about it. And that is your first step as a behavior analyst is to research. Don't take the lazy way out because your clients are not going to explain everything to you. Like you're there, you're not going to get to sit down with them and say, okay, so tell me everything about being black. You know, absolutely. But it's gonna if you've done some research, it might shape your questions that you might ask. Like like we were talking about police earlier. If you know that you're gonna teach a community helpers program, it might shape the way that you ask that question. So at least doing some some digging, some background. So before you go in there, um, in the chapter that you have in the book, y'all talk about assessments, right? Um, and there was a, a there was a few assessments that you all gave, and one that stuck out to me was uh, Randall David's work. How do you relate to various groups of people in society? Um, and so, basically, in that chapter, though, y'all were just talking about like self assessments in general. So, can you talk to us about like how to conduct a self assessment to identify, obviously, our professional, professional, and personal areas of competence in respect to culture and diversity? It's simple, and the, the answer to that question is simple and complicated at the same time. Um, the first thing you have to do, um, get into a quiet place uh, where, you know, there's not that much, turn your phones off, you know, get off Instagram and all this other stuff. Um, pick any assessment that'll work for you, and I mean any assessment, and actually sit down and think about it. You know, um, conducting a self-assessment is not something that you can do in three minutes and say, oh, I'm great on everything, because... I know personally I've done self-assessments and just checked. Yes, 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 I'm great. Two days later, I go back and look at the assessment. I'm like, wait a minute, I definitely do that. I definitely don't do that. So you have to be able to confront your own demons, be able to sit in a feeling of we're we're human beings. We don't, we are not, we're not built to be uncomfortable. Lord knows we're not. If that's not with masks and COVID, if that has not been demonstrated, I don't know how other we can do that. But in order to gain authentic knowledge, you've got to be uncomfortable to be able to sit in a space where maybe I do have an issue with this particular group. Maybe I don't feel comfortable working with this particular particular cultural group. And that's okay. That is absolutely okay because your personal beliefs and your... We all grew up with our own personal beliefs. Lord only knows. But the only way you're going to know kind of where your your boundaries are and where your buffers are is you've got to be able to, you got to do a self-assessment. Once you've finished sitting down, and I'd say do more than one, because there is a billion out there. Def, like if 
I look at it like this only because my my friends do them. If you are if you can sit down and do any of those quizzes on Instagram and Facebook and these social media sites, you have enough time to do a self-assessment. Lord only knows. You can probably get eight done in an evening. Um, but as once you've done that, then you've got to figure out where your areas of opportunity are and actually seek out understanding, not just the surface. I read a book, I read a chapter, I watched a YouTube video, but read more than just one thing. If you, I'll say for African-Americans, hmm, African, if you don't know a lot about African-American history, it's more than just Martin Luther King, Rosa Parks, and Harriet Tubman. Shocking, I know. But if you don't know, like for me, I am an African-American male. I had to do a self-assessment and realize that there is a lot of my own history that I was never aware of. So what have I had to do? First off, I cried for about a good 20 minutes because wait, how am I, how am I black and don't know this stuff? And then I had to start reading. I had to start researching. I had to start doing these things. And we know in our field that you reinforcement punishment, I was building in reinforcement into that understanding and that seeking of authentic knowledge, which is something you got to do. It can't just be walking around with sackcloth and ashes of, oh, I suck at life. I don't know this. I don't know that. Right. You don't know it. But the only way you're going to be able to fix these issues is if you can identify them first. And this is a great way to do it. Absolutely. But great way to start. I definitely think that, you know, I agree with you. There has to be that awareness piece. The, you know, I like, I like the term sitting with yourself, um, And I like considering, you know, we can use behavior analytic terminology here. And, you know, when folks engage in uh, avoidance behaviors, sitting with yourself is hard. Like to have the thought that like, dang, I believed I learned this way. And that is so jacked up. Like that could feel extremely aversive. However, you know, part of doing better, part of part of life is being able to sit with things that are aversive in service of, you know, other things in service of your values. So um, step number one, definitely, I hear you, is being able to sit with yourself um, because it can impact so, so much. Um, just even the small nuances that you mentioned earlier, I think about, uh, I'm thinking, I'm remembering a part of the chapter where it was even talking about how you communicate about the field to other people, which is a big thing <laughs> for a behavior oh. analyst. <laughs> Assuming that people know what you know is a huge bias and then getting upset when people don't know what you know um, or how you know it. Um, it's very interesting to me because we know as behavior analysts that language is arbitrary till you give it meaning, right? And Absolutely. so we have all this language and we've given it meaning of, and it makes sense to us because it's part of our culture. And then we're just like, oh, why doesn't the rest of the world get this? We're so smart. But even part of that reeks in, you know, cultural incompetence, reeks in, um, reeks in like, white westernized white supremacy like the fact that we have this entire field that is rooted in language that honestly in in my opinion keeps a lot of people out like we have to we gotta take a deeper look at that when your language is keeping people out when you have people who have studied 
at a master's level or even a PhD level and still can't have a conversation with you, something is up with our language. Okay. So anyway, yeah. What else, Sean? Do you, you know, at this point, um, is there anything else you want to add about the chapter, about the book? I'll, I'll say this. I know that although everybody that is being vocal right now about the book loves it, I already know that there is that few little small little sector of people that have got all kinds of comments and questions and things of that nature. And although I am super proud of all the hours and all the authors and the contributors that went into this book, I want people to understand that this is in no way, shape, and or form a perfect work. Mm. It couldn't be. But to me, I, 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 instead of condemning, I challenge those individuals. If we screwed up so bad, y'all come on over here. Help. Because eventually we hope that there's going to be a, 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 a number two. We're, we're hoping, I'm, personally, I'm hoping for a three, four, and five. But that's just me. That's my own little self-dominating you know, mindset. But I think that this is where right now the field of ABA, and it's just demonstrated in this book, we are calling for action. That mm-hmm. we need the field to be to be moved forward, and it cannot be the same few group of individuals doing everything all the time. So, not saying that you need to become a social justice warrior, not saying that you need to be an author or anything else of that nature, but this is the time where you can either complain or you can get up and do something. And you have way too many people complaining, so let's get up and do something. Absolutely. Um, and small caveat with that, please don't think that you're going to get up and do something like it's hard because some folks who think that they know best. I mean, we've seen it play out in our field, unfortunately, um, of individuals who have come up and spoke against culture. Why do we have a need for it? Um, those are individuals you know, typically loud and wrong, um, but they'll definitely do that and take up space. Um, but for those folks who maybe you're shifting and you're like, ah, something's not right. Get with the people who have been doing it then. Cause I can guarantee you leading from a space of your own body. Like if, if you haven't done that self-work, like I can only imagine what the actual work looks like. Right. And so please don't, don't, point fingers, throw stones or whatever, if you won't even take a moment to even do the starting point that you even talked about today, Sean, which is a self-assessment. It has to to be part of that before folks just get up and start walking towards because there's people lives that are at risk when you do that for real. Um, So, yeah, I want to thank you so much for your time here. As always, like you're you're welcome back at any time. You have a full book of many chapters, so <laughs> we we might bring you back again. Um, but we like to give homework for every show. So, Sean, do you have any homework that you want to assign to our listeners tonight? I actually do because okay. I was thinking about it. Um, as I was preparing, um, the first homework assignment, the first one, um, is take some perspective that, yes, the stuff that was talked about today, the stuff that you're hearing might be fairly aversive to you, but as my friend would say, it's not about you, boo-boo. It's about 
the other individual. So be able to sit in the seat of someone else um, and actively try to do that. It might not be something as big as culture or race. It might be, hey, I'm thirsty. Just because you're not thirsty does not mean somebody else it does not need a glass of water. Mm-hmm. The second thing that the second homework assignment I would give to your to the listeners of this podcast would be get up and do something. Get up, get out, do something, read a book. Don't just call one particular member of a group and say, hey, what should I do? Google it. Find, starting point. For the love of all that's good and holy. Yes, get the book. Absolutely. Lord knows get the book. We would love for you to get the book. Get three and four of them. But don't read the book and then put it down and say, I'm never going to touch this again. Pick up other books. Start that process. Because if you start the process, it can only positively impact your life and the life of the individuals that you touch. Awesome. So... Yeah, I like that homework because my homework was going to be get the book and then do the homework that's in the book because there's case studies and stuff in that book that actually get you to think critically. So do those two. Yes. Well, with that being said, Sean, for our listeners, can you tell them where they can find you online? Yes. Well, on Instagram, I am Covenant1516. Um, Well, at Covenant1516, same thing with Facebook. Um, and if you would like, you can go to our website, which is www.covenant1516.org. Awesome. Well, that concludes our show for today. Thank you for committing to being beautiful humans with us. And without Aaron, I'm going to say tune in for the next show. It's Denisha and Aaron. I just wanted to take the time here to let you know that if you're thinking about doing a podcast, there's a way for you to do a show without having to become an audio editing and production wizard. Yeah, you know, uh, we probably would have never gotten the show off the ground if it wasn't for a pretty easy podcast. So pretty easy podcast helps podcasters get their shows recorded and posted with a complete podcast studio at your disposal. Record from your home or your office or at the park. Pretty Easy Podcast caters to your schedule and gives you a producer for your show at your beck and call. So if you have an idea for a show and you need someone to rely on to help you get it done, go to prettyeasypodcast.com and sign up today. Be heard and have some fun podcasting. You know you want to do it. So go to prettyeasypodcast.com today. Mm-hmm.